0: Unmasking Prejudice – Silencing the Internal Voice of Bigotry by Dr. Melody Hilton
1: Chapter 7. The Personal, Painful Stories of Prejudice Some may believe that I write out of idealistic sentimentalism in confronting the destructive power of prejudice. Yes, my heart breaks for those who suffer in the wake of injustice— but science informs us what happens neurologically when our thoughts are toxic. I made this same claim in Higher Living Leadership. According to neuroscientists, every thought that we have is either fear- or faith-based, destructive or building, toxic or healthy. Because of the intense emotional component of negative thoughts, they become at least three times more forceful than the positive thoughts. However, these negative thoughts are not more powerful than the power of personal choice. The objective of maturity is to feed faith-based thoughts, healthy thoughts that build healthy memory, and starve thoughts that are fear-based, destructive thoughts that build unhealthy memory. Part of the process of the brain's maturation is to make neural connections from the reward center, the place of emotional reaction of the brain to the executive prefrontal cortex. It is the utilization of the prefrontal cortex that gives the ability to focus, organize, and strategize. This powerful part of the brain also allows us to make wise decisions separate from emotional reactions, to control impulses, and to assess our thoughts and emotions in order to determine our course of action. Simply speaking, the thoughts we choose to accept or reject will allow us to think objectively, rather than subjectively, through emotion or experience. This is how we can live in a world filled with difficulties and still love life. This is how we can reject a culture of pride and prejudice. All prejudice, assumption, bias, and gossip is destructive and toxic to our mind-brain. Negative thoughts are more forceful because they are accompanied by intense emotion, which establishes an automatic fear-based pattern of thought. Though we are not born with prejudice, our minds can quickly adopt belief systems that reject anything that is different than our own passion-driven programming. We will fight for a subjective cause even when faced with objective proof of its inaccuracies, because we feel it so strongly and so deeply. It is human nature to be critical of what we do not understand. Many choose to camp on the dirty banks of disapproval and fault-finding, rather than risk getting in the waters of understanding, empathy, compassion, and care for others. We can be washed internally by a choice to hear another's story and learn to love. The wise Maya Angelou said, If we lose love and self-respect for each other, this is how we finally die. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. said, I have decided to stick with love. Hate is too great a burden to bear. Each one of us have stories of injustice, pain, loss and sorrow. We can both empathize and be a part of the solution by the way we live, love, and lead, or we can pity ourselves into powerlessness and victimization. Maya Angelou also said, history, despite its wrenching pain, cannot be unlived, but if faced with courage, need not be lived again. While writing this book, I asked a large and diverse group of people if they would be so brave as to share their stories with me. And you. I was in awe of the number of responses I received. Many have requested pseudonyms to protect the innocent, but wanted to share their past and present battles, in order to confront the evil of prejudice personally and head-on. I applaud their courage and heart to be part of the solution. Allow your heart to feel their pain. How do your experiences connect to theirs? Be self-aware and be willing to silence the internal voice of bigotry within. This is so important because understanding removes prejudgment. Compassion motivates us to action, and validation will help to heal the wounded heart. You see, neurologically speaking, What we believe and what we do for the good of others feeds back into our own brains and heals us. When we think right, we do right and therefore experience an internal peace. As you read the following true life experiences and the viewpoints of different cultures, you will see that prejudice is a worldwide epidemic. It is a belief system that shames others in order to exalt self. You will see that prejudice is not exclusive, but infiltrates and separates anyone who is or believes differently. Each one of the following individuals desired to share his or her story with a heart for healing and reconciliation. You will hear from men and women from various generations, with diverse ethnicities and cultures, and all with different religious beliefs— and socio-economic lifestyles. Real life stories reveal the pain of prejudice.
0: Harold, my family experienced racial prejudice. Our family lived in a predominantly white community and I attended schools that were over 90% white, which brought many challenges. Because of the color of my skin, I remember not being invited to birthday parties. If a child got upset with me on the playground or in gym class, they would call me a nigger. I even experienced mistreatment from my teachers because of the color of my skin, causing me to act out. I was always in trouble. My family also experienced prejudice by our relatives because we lived in an area that they considered was for whites. The community was for upper-class citizens, so we were called bougie. They believed that we felt we were better than others. My mother and grandparents always dressed me in the best name brand clothing, so when I was with my cousins, they would tease me by making critical comments. It was one thing to be mocked by schoolmates, but another thing to be teased by your own family for being privileged. I was also viewed as talking and acting white. I still don't know how whites act and talk.
2: Ni My husband and I are in an interracial marriage. I'm African American and he is Mexican and Puerto Rican. We have experienced racial prejudice because of this. There was a great deal of rejection from my mother-in-law's family. Many did not accept me and were cold and unwelcoming. A family member said to my husband, how do you go from this to that? Meaning, How do you date Hispanic women your whole life and then end up with a black woman? They went beyond race to religious prejudice because I was also a Christian. My side of the family was open and accepting, but they and close friends made comments saying that they knew I would marry someone outside of my race because I've always acted white. In public, we constantly catch stares from both black and Hispanic people. My grandfather grew up during segregation and went to an all-black school. He still has the mentality that white people are out to get black people, they can't be trusted, and they think they are better than us. This has always frustrated me, because my family as a whole has always raised us to love all people, regardless of differences, and to give everyone a fair chance until they prove otherwise. No matter how much I try to explain to my grandfather that his thoughts are false, he still chooses to
1: stay stuck in that prejudicial mindset. Donna. I experienced prejudice as a single parent. I had three children by three different men. My mother and grandmother both had children by different men. Often I would hear... Aren't you Betty's daughter?" I could see their facial expressions, and at times, when walking away, I would see them whispering. People would say that I was fast and easy, that I thought I was cute and was criticized because of my lighter skin. My mother experienced a lot of prejudice growing up. She was bullied because she was light-skinned and small. Her father was Cheyenne and Irish, and her mother was Blackfoot Indian. She always grew up in low-income housing and was shunned because of that. The girls were extremely jealous because of her beauty and falsely accused her of wanting their boyfriends. Hearing those stories made me angry and sad because I was experiencing the same thing as early as first grade. Because of my experiences, I believed that all men were alike. They were all cheaters, liars, and users of women for sex, money, etc. What also fed into the belief was my hurt from men growing up through the molestation by my stepfather and his three brothers. I felt that you cannot trust any man.
0: Kevin. My brother and I, plus one other student, were the only three people in the elementary school of the 300 to 400 students who were of Asian descent. We had to ride the bus to and from school. The bus ride was about 20 minutes. There was one older kid on the bus who would make fun of me because I looked different. He would ask me why my face and nose were so flat. Kids would pull the sides of their eyes and speak fake Asian language to point out how I looked different from them, until they got to know me. My parents, brother, and I would walk along the sidewalk, and people we didn't know would shout across the street, trying to imitate speaking in Chinese and shouting out racial slurs. Back then, items made in Japan were of cheap, low quality. My parents would teach us to just ignore them. When I went off to middle school, junior high school in those days, We were segregated by academic levels and would change classrooms to move to where our teachers were, and my peer group accepted me. I earned respect from performance, so I learned to cover shame with outstanding performance and work-based results. In Boy Scouts, I excelled at most activities and quickly became a leader. But there were some who never associated with me or my dad who was a volunteer leader. I remember dating a girl in middle school for a short time, but I never met her father because he apparently hated Japanese people, I think because of World War II. Her dad was a Boy Scout leader in our troop. Today, I do not necessarily face outward prejudice, although I am considered a minority, so when I serve on corporate committees, they get to check the box that the committee was inclusive. Kevin's reverse prejudice. My first experience working a government contract involved developing the personnel database for the U.S. Marine Corps. Because of the data involved, we compiled statistical analyses around gender, race, ethnicity, and other demographics. Because there were over 150,000 active duty Marines, the sample sizes are large and statistically significant. I remember seeing that the Asian group scored statistically higher on the intellectual exams and taking pride in that. A type of reverse prejudice, as if to prove to all of the people that made fun of me growing up that I had a right to be respected. This was a kind of self-defense mechanism. It would take many years to process through the unhealthy thoughts of work-based self-worth. Kevin's father... When my father was in second grade, his teacher refused to let any Japanese students go to the bathroom, so many of them wet their pants. This was before internment. Of course, in response to the invasion of Pearl Harbor on December 7, 1941, over 100,000 people of Japanese ancestry were relocated away from their West Coast homes inland to concentration camps. My parents and their families... Both the Ikeda and the Hata families were relocated to the Poston Camp in Arizona. There are tons of stories. Because no one knew what was happening, neither the government nor the families, the Japanese families didn't know if they should sell their property or not. Some did, some didn't. Our great-grandmother sold her lettuce farm in Salinas, California, to seven men who each became millionaires. Bud Lettuce Farm today. She died poor. All families cooperated with the government, i.e. there were no protests, and were shipped via train to concentration camps located in the desert with barbed wire and guard towers with armed guards. They moved into the barracks and used rope and blankets to make rooms to separate families, making the best of the situation. Japanese-American young men volunteered to serve in the U.S. Army and formed the 442nd Regimental Combat Team to prove their loyalty to the United States. The 442nd became the most decorated unit of size and duration in the history of the U.S. Army. When the war ended, Charles Seabrook worked a deal with the U.S. government to relocate 4,500 Japanese Americans from concentration camps to work his commercial farms in southern New Jersey. He built low-cost housing and schools for them. The Japanese American Citizens League was formed to represent the voice of Japanese Americans in the U.S. government. My dad served as chairman of the Philadelphia chapter, organizing events to solidify and socialize the Japanese American families. Monique. Presently, my family lives in a West
3: African nation. There are so many cultural beliefs and traditions that affect our family daily, for good and for bad. For instance, many women would not submit to women in leadership positions. Many women are mistreated in their homes and by society. I have heard men refer to women as if they are troublemakers and a burden to the men who choose to marry them. In parts of my nation, they call young girls who are extraordinarily gifted and intelligent witches, rather than valuing and celebrating them. There is also prejudice concerning skin color. Believing fair is more beautiful. The fairer-skinned people are better, cleaner, and smarter. Some employers even hire fairer-skinned people above darker-skinned individuals. Our older sons have experienced prejudice from their own people simply because they are natives and not internationals. We have gone to public places and the workers insulted our sons in their local dialect. They have been asked to leave the table because they are darker skinned and couldn't belong to our family. Though our son said they were in our family, they were accused of lying and told they were not suitable to be in our family. Anna, in my country of origin, my mother has experienced prejudice in her job. The country she currently works in has a lot of East Indians, and she is looked down upon at times because she is black. In their thinking, black means you are not qualified to do the job. Joanna I grew up on an island that has various races, and I never thought much about race. Though I knew there was prejudice, I had bigger issues to deal with. It was not until I came to the United States that I recognized how black I was. For whatever reason, there is strong race consciousness and many assumptions about other races that are not entirely true. I was aware of my ethnic background before I came to the United States, but it was magnified once I came here. Upon my arrival, someone said to me, I didn't know if you were going to hunt for your food or if you would buy it. I chuckled to be polite, but I informed that that we didn't swing from vines in the Caribbean. I worked past that experience, but remember thinking, Do you think I'm a monkey or something? How could you say that to anybody? When an individual has these types of experiences, they carried inside themselves subconsciously, causing their mind to automatically believe that others believe the same about black people. Without positive interaction, it could cause you to become prejudiced yourself. Also, growing up, I was abandoned by my father and abused by another father figure. That caused me to believe all men were bad and selfish. Though I had a desire to be married, I was terrified of marriage because of my beliefs concerning men. Even when I did marry, there were places of fear that I had to overcome. I remember saying,
2: Men are bastards. Annette My grandparents told stories about themselves and their family after slavery had been abolished. They and their family would work on the land as sharecroppers for an entire year. At the year's end, they would go to collect their pay, And were told that they still owed money. I remember feeling that they were cheated of a year's earnings for which they had honestly worked so hard. Though slavery had ended, I felt that we were still in slavery, just another form. In the 1960s, when I was in the fifth grade, we were told that the smarter African-American kids would be sent to Northeast Middle School. So we were bussed miles from our middle school so that we could integrate. The Caucasian children did not want us at their school. They spit on us. They fought with us. We would fight back, but only the black children would get put off the bus. If we sat beside them, they would push us off the seats. They called us monkeys and told us to go back to Africa. We could not drink from the same water fountains. We had to go to the balcony to see a movie or go to the drive-in. We could not try on clothes in the department stores. We could not eat from the lunch counters. We had to go to the back of restaurants and order food while the whites sat inside. We were constantly called negative names. Even when the black dolls came out, I asked why the same doll that was white had a lower price than the black dolls. They let me know if I wanted it, I would just have to pay the price. In 1971, my brother was secretly dating a white girl. When this was discovered, he was expelled from school, and we woke up in the morning to find a burnt KKK cross on our lawn and our yard filled with cards saying, KKK is out to get you. After I was married, we went to Danville, Virginia, to go to Value City. When we got to the Virginia state line, our son had to use the restroom. We stopped at a service station that had a restroom, and they told us that blacks could not use it. So we pulled off the road to let our son go in the woods, and the white men at the service station shot a gun for us to move out of the area. In the 1970s and 80s, we would go with the church on picnics. We would go to a popular lake or to the beach. They would not let us or our children change in the locker rooms. We had to put up towels on the bus windows to let the women and girls change at one time and do the same for the men. Also, in every store we entered, we were followed around like criminals because they expected us to steal. Annette's post office experience. I passed the post office exam and was hired. I started a Bible study there, and they told me that the federal government and religion could not be mixed. They told me that I could not sing or even hum gospel music while working the line. The post office was hiring a lot of blacks with bachelor's, master's, and doctorate degrees. Our supervisor would stand at the clock each night and tell us that he had a third-grade education and he was over us. He would then say that the KKK, Ku Klux Klan, could bomb that area and get rid of a lot of blacks. Yes, the post office hired both white women and black women at the same time, but the black women were in the trucks dumping and loading sacks of mail that often weighed more than us. They would send the white women upstairs to key in mail. It was said to me, You work like a horse, and I requested that you and your cousin, also female, work loading trucks. I went to the labor union, but nothing changed. I faced even more harassment. I then went to the postmaster general in Washington, D.C., and he flew down and inquired why this could not be resolved. At that point, a supervisor came to me. All of their stress had me experiencing mild heart attacks. This white supervisor said that he was going to get me out of the post office if he had to make me have a heart attack and die. And he said, You can tell whoever you want but it's your word against mine, as he pointed to his white hand, indicating. Annette is only one year older than I am. All these blatant, arrogant, and bigoted actions and attitudes towards her and those she loved are, to quote my grandson, stupid. This injustice, though in her past, still wrecks my heart. This past abuse of power for the silent generation and the baby boomers is still screaming in the ears of today's young people. Their hearts carry a hurt, a second-hand indignation for what their ancestors experienced. Annette humbles me. She shared how her experiences caused her whole life to be consumed with prejudice, and she, in turn, grew to dislike white people. Later in her life, she knew she was called to pastor and saw herself as one who loved everyone. She began to realize that she had to remove racial prejudice in regard to whites. She chose to ask forgiveness for her prejudice and chose to forgive those who treated her with such disdain. Her heart's desire today is for everyone to see that we are brothers and sisters, for all prejudice and profiling to stop, And for us to choose to love unconditionally. Eva
1: My parents and grandparents told me how they were denied jobs because of their race. Many of them lived through the Civil Rights era when schools were first being integrated and they were told by whites, We don't want you niggers in our school. They were called monkeys and other derogatory names, being treated less than human. They bore the pain of ignorant statements like, the Negro is intellectually inferior. Some of them actually believed it until the Civil Rights Movement and the rise of black empowerment groups worked to restore the dignity and pride in being black. My grandparents told me stories of traveling from Florida to New York to pick fruit, They said they would pack food for their trip because many restaurants and stores would not serve them food because they were black. They told stories of how they couldn't drink from the same water fountains as whites. If a white man addressed you, you couldn't look him in the face or assert yourself. My great-grandmother told me a story about how her dad's brother was sold to another plantation in Georgia. And he never saw his family again. There was such loss, grief, and fear that affected our family generationally. I experienced a handful of whites in my elementary school, along with white teachers, while living in Florida. I liked them. They were nice to me, so I was nice to them. However, my school in upstate New York, which was predominantly white, caused my sister and I to feel a little odd as two of the four blacks who attended the school. My teachers were nice there, but the white and Mexican kids seemed like they had never seen a black person before. I had very few friends. I remember in an after-school program, an older Mexican boy walked up to me and asked for my hand. He bent my fingers so far back until I cried. Even though I had that bad experience with a Mexican boy, I never developed a prejudice toward Mexicans, and my community never warned of friendships with Mexicans. Only whites. I remember my family car breaking down in a parking lot in southern Maryland car full of white boys saw us and started circling our van, yelling, Niggers! 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 Oh, God. My grandfather got his shotgun ready because that is the way we lived. Ready to take on a white person. Caroline Johnston Waking up to the thunderous sounds of bombs was a normal occurrence in Northern Ireland during the Troubles. Prior to this, the country was largely united, but became extremely divided with a deeply embedded prejudice in the minds and memories of the people. Clinging to past wars, misunderstandings, and cultural ties perpetuated the unease and non-acceptance of the other side. Segregation led to sectarianism, which in turn led to daily shootings and bombings. I clearly remember British soldiers lining the streets and wondering how these barriers of sectarian bigotry could be taken down, and how the civilians would survive this war zone. The political tension turned into a war of religious denominations, as hatred festered over the years. The Catholic and Protestant rivalry was a cover for the core political debate. Republicans thought that they were justified fighting for a united Ireland, and the Loyalists defended their connection to the United Kingdom and the royal family. Arrogance, pride, and mistrust led to bigotry, infiltrating the whole country, especially in the inner city, working-class communities. There was also a lack of willingness to communicate with the other side, leading to a repetition of death and destruction. A wall was constructed in Belfast to keep apart rival factions, but this only served to perpetuate the hatred of the other side. Murals were painted over the walls to give each side a sense of identity. On the Republican side, they proclaimed, Our day will come, and on the Loyalist side, if you don't love it, leave it, and no surrender. After over thirty years and countless bloody atrocities had been orchestrated by all paramilitaries, some brave leaders stood up and called for a peace agreement and disarmament. At the same time, hope was beaming through fully integrated and inclusive schools such as Belfast Royal Academy, where I attended. Our principal stated to parents, "'If you are uncomfortable with your child sitting beside a person from another religion,' then this school isn't for you. The inclusive approach that adopted no tolerance for prejudice developed a new era of acceptance and peace. Cultural exchanges gave Northern Ireland children the opportunity to stay with an American family and another child from the side they were never exposed to. It was an enriching program that changed the mindset of many and contributed to a new understanding. As John Maxwell affirmed, diversity is a good thing. We are all partially right and all partially wrong. The only way to transform the world is through diversity, not just by one party. In the past, it was risky to be in certain areas of Northern Ireland with the wrong accent. An Irish Times article illustrated some interesting facts following a documentary on cross-border visits. Northerners who visited the Republic for the first time realized they were surprisingly similar, with the same sense of humor and the same spirit of generosity. Stepping across the now unpatrolled, invisible border allowed them to discover, communicate, and connect with the other side. Forgiveness has been the key to restoration. It has helped reduce the fighting, tearing walls of hatred down, and in turn building stronger communities. The greatest leap toward faith was in the 1990s, when sectarian leaders and former leaders of terrorist groups agreed to a ceasefire, entered into talks, and became political leaders representing reconciliation. During a business meeting, I agreed to shake hands with one of these reformed terrorists, which was a challenge, knowing that he had orchestrated numerous murders and had blood on his hands. I chose to put the past behind me, as many others were doing to unite our country. A more poignant example of forgiveness is my close friend, whose father... A police officer was murdered by a terrorist group. Although it hurt, her forgiveness set her free from what could have been a prison of bitterness that so many remained trapped in. The scars of the past remain for some. But it is evident that the peace process has brought prosperity to Northern Ireland. Its streets, once filled with rubble and ashes, are now splendid, And covered in beauty. Loving our neighbour as we love ourselves is the key to sustained peace. We have a long way to go, but I believe the great people of Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland will win this war of prejudice. Norm Interview Normand and Nancy graciously invited a mutual friend and I into their beautifully quaint home. They appeared to love life and each other as their five valued babies—two small pooches and three large greyhounds—surrounded them, all of whom greeted us with much enthusiasm and many kisses. When the dogs calmed, we all positioned ourselves to hear this valued man's story. Norm is a Russian Jew. While he does not consider himself religious, he directed my attention to the beautiful menorahs displayed on the mantle of his fireplace. He reached behind his shirt to reveal his necklace, a star of David, a six-pointed star symbolic of Judaism and Israel. In his hand he held a paper penned with memories, which was evidence of his thoughtful preparation. His personality was strong-minded and unwavering, yet he was vulnerable and transparent as he spoke of the pain of anti-Semitism that only a Jew can understand. Nancy is Norm's third wife, and the day following our interview, they would celebrate their 25th wedding anniversary. His first wife was Jewish. Before he married his second wife, he felt his first sting of prejudice as his German soon-to-be father-in-law said,
0: I don't really care if you're a Jew. Just take care of my daughter.
1: The passive, sarcastic tone of his comment made clear his disapproving, prejudiced thoughts on Norm's heritage. The father of Norm's two stepchildren was a bigoted influence. As his wife was making matzo ball soup one day, Norm's seven-year-old stepson insolently said, I'm not going to eat this Jew food. They later moved to a rural community where they were beautifully welcomed. Friendships quickly developed as dinner invitations increased. They returned the kindness and welcomed their neighbors into their home. This particular neighbor lived right next door to them. When he saw the Jewish star from the Torah on Norm's desk, he simply said,
0: I didn't know you were Jewish.
1: That was the last time the neighbor talked to them. Later, as Norm was struggling and going through a difficult divorce, a friend encouraged him to go to a Christian minister who was wonderful and loving. He went to him many times, as well as to a convention requested by the minister. Upon his return, the minister said,
0: Are you ready to convert?
1: Norm said, No, I'm not converting. The minister's response was, Then I can't talk to you anymore. This was hurtful and disgusting to Norm because he recognized that. He didn't care about me
0: as a human being. He only wanted a conversion.
1: Authentic honor is the heart to value another amid our differences. When Norm and Nancy began to grow close, her brother said,
0: You need to find a Christian, not a Jew. Stick to your own kind.
1: She wouldn't speak to her brother then, and continues to reject him 27 years later. After Norm and Nancy were married, his mother-in-law was in their home when they were not there. She was trying to find a needed household item during a snowstorm, and called Nancy's sister to ask about it. Her response was, What do you expect from that cheap Jew bastard? You might think, what's the big deal? Maybe you were expecting the horrors of the Holocaust to be a part of his story, and this seems insignificant. We cannot marginalize the effect of hatred, prejudice, bias, and bigotry. These life experiences hold the power to impact a person's entire life. At the time of this writing, Norm is 76 years old. He communicated, I'm
0: just cautious, careful.
1: He has learned to keep his ethnicity a secret in order to protect himself and Nancy from anti-Semitic hostility, discrimination, and prejudice. He began to share current events of anti-Semitism. He said,
0: All you have to do is go back to 1938 and go over to Germany to find out what it was really like. Almost all the Germans became anti-Semitic, and all the Poles became anti-Semitic. They killed my people. He said, I'm not going to walk outside with the Jewish star and say, Here I am. I'm living in a neighborhood where I am the only Jew.
1: What these stories reveal. Our automatic patterns of thought are the result of long-term memory that is developed through repeated experiences. We also know that the communication of information from others, especially when it affects us emotionally or triggers fear, trains our brains to think and believe a prescribed way. Therefore, when we hear stories from those we love, when combined with our own personal experiences that support that information, our brain becomes imprinted with a long-term memory that can be taken from the subconscious to the conscious at a moment's notice, causing us to relive the emotions again and again. When we experience a traumatic event, Memory is instantaneously etched in our brain as the pain of that event immediately activates fear-based memory. Prejudgment locks me into a former reality as we rehearse the fear, the powerlessness, and the pain. These dreaded emotions cause us to run from anything that is remotely similar to our past experiences. Who puts their hands back in the fire after being burned? Science explains that when we replay painful incidents mentally or dwell on hurtful events and negative feelings begin to crowd out possibilities and you may drown in a sense of injustice, the brain's basal ganglia stores every reaction to severe disappointments. And if negative or bitter Those reactions limit your chances for finding well-being in a similar situation. I was the youngest child with four older brothers. I was not the girly girl with the princess dresses and would never have been caught playing with dolls. I climbed trees and did what the boys did. When I was small, my brothers wanted me to ride a horse, so I signed up for this new adventure. When my brothers put the saddle on the horse, They accidentally forgot to tighten the straps sufficiently. When they placed me on the calm horse, it began to walk. As the horse's gait increased, I began to bounce on the saddle. This was all fine until the saddle turned completely upside down on the horse. I was immersed in total fear, holding on with every ounce of strength I could muster. All I could see was the horse's legs, and all I could hear was my brother's yelling. They ran after us and stopped the horse. There was no harm done. Or was there? It was not a big deal for my brothers, but to this day, I still do not ride horses. A horse stable borders our land. I love sitting on my front porch looking at the horses frolicking with each other or simply grazing. But I have absolutely no desire to ride them. Over 50 years later, I see a horse and remember that experience. I remember as a three- or four-year-old, my daddy went into the attic of our little home nestled in the hills of Pennsylvania. He came downstairs telling us about the large black snake that was living in the house. He found the snake wrapped in the rafters and it bit him. It was not a big deal to my dad because black snakes are not poisonous, and are good because they eat mice i on the other hand was horrified i would rather see a mouse than a snake the attic was right above my bedroom hidden in the woods there was an old stone mill that was reduced to rubble and infested with snakes as a young girl i was violated at that mill that specific memory is very vague because i was so young but I clearly remember the trauma of seeing a den of snakes. It's safe to conclude that my thoughts, attitudes, and beliefs about all snakes is now simply, the only good snake is a dead one. Even into my adult years, if I saw a picture of a snake, it instantly stirred a sense of fear. My brain was imprinted with instructions for my protection. There were also mindsets that were developed inside this little girl's mind from these and other experiences. Mindsets were formed from my experiential reality exaggerating the truth. Subconsciously, these events began to tell me, if I can't trust my brothers to protect me on a horse, and if I can't trust my dad to remove a snake from our home, then I must protect myself. The well-kept secrets of sexual violation were held in their own storehouse of tainted reality. The truth was that my father and brothers loved me and desired to protect me. However, my fear and my perceived lack of protection were writing prejudgmental beliefs within my mind. Powerlessness and fear was the buried core of my thoughts and emotions. Therefore, I adapted my behaviors to only trust in my own power. My personality was assertive, focused, and determined, even as a little girl, because that is what I needed in order to meet my needs. We call this survival. Eva spoke earlier about the Mexican boy who took her hand and bent her fingers back so hard she cried. She wrote, I was only four years old at that time, and I and my sister were too young to fight him. But then she adds this statement. The next school year, I became the bully and beat every child I could. I was always in trouble, and I was only in kindergarten. Out of fear and a sense of powerlessness, she became the bully rather than the bullied. This was her survival. This fear produces a fight-or-flight response, which is important if we are facing physical danger. However, our brains do not differentiate between a physical threat and an emotional threat. For years, I lived ready to fight all men, especially white men. Eva had to fight whites, Mexicans, or anyone who threatened her survival. I'm not advocating aggression or making excuses for the prejudice in our world. However, it is important to understand the reason why the majority of the world's populace are affected by the epidemic of mistrust and the symptoms of fear and ignorance associated with prejudice. Love is innate at birth, but prejudice is learned. Prejudice is simply fear-based prejudgment, When we believe, act, and respond without knowing someone personally or react to a situation without gathering the facts, it is prejudiced by its very nature. That is why I believe there is prejudice in all of us. That is why I'm convinced that if we as leaders assess ourselves objectively and confront all prejudgment, bias, and the loudest voices in our society— our decisions will be healthy and purpose-driven. We will find ourselves making better decisions, enjoying healthy, diverse relationships, and taking risks that will empower success in our own personal and professional lives. What valuable partnership could I sidestep because of prejudgment? What effectual door of opportunity would I close out of fear? Is my sphere of influence restricted and incomplete because I only connect to those who are like me and endorse all my ideologies? We have to possess the courage to silence the internal voice of bigotry in order to live fully and impact our world for good with the understanding that prejudice is a learned mindset. Our brain can be rewired to its innate nature, love, and validation by changing the way we think. For our own emotional health and the health of our spheres of influence, we must embrace the courage to be a part of the solution and refuse to feed into negative, fear-driven narratives. Today's choice is our place of power. We often gather together within our little cliques of camaraderie, stay safe in our circles of familiarity, and construct our little band of brothers. We understand, relate, and have similar experiences, which brings a sense of validation, belonging, and acceptance. The need for a community provides a family where we can give and receive love and protection. This is beautiful, and every person on the planet should have the ability to enjoy this place of mutual support and encouragement. These relationships are so valuable because from this place of empowerment, we should emerge to enjoy the benefits of diversity, inclusion, and lifelong discovery. We were meant to live life fully, pursue noble endeavors, and expand our relational horizons to know more and become more than we ever dreamed possible. Is it feasible to have genuine, healthy, and positive relationships without sharing similar experiences or understanding? Is it possible to enjoy reciprocal relationships of value, honor, and celebration when we come from a different reality? Is it a prerequisite to fully comprehend another's battles, struggles, and pain in order to care deeply and commit fully? Can we team together as instruments of justice on behalf of our society when we have come from different worlds? Yes, because the choices of today are our place of power. Powerful people change what they can and choose peace in what they cannot. There are things we are powerless to change. We cannot change our past experiences and respond differently through our present understanding. We cannot go back in time and muster the courage to go through the doors that our shame and fear kept us from. We cannot go back and negate our stupid actions as we lived for the moment or succumb to peer pressure. We are also powerless to control the attitudes or reactions of another, past, present, or future. There are things other people are powerless to change. They cannot go back in time or negate the stupid mistakes of their past. They also are powerless to control those within their own race, family of origin, generation, sex, or platform of influence. Why would we judge an individual for something that they are powerless to change? Attacking people for their past failure is a place of prejudice. I, personally, do not want to be judged for the immature decisions of my youth or the reactive and attacking self-protective outbursts of my insecurities. I do not want to be judged by the injustices of my race. I do not want to be judged by the actions of leaders who abuse their power. They are not me. They are the opposite of who I am. Today is our moment of power. Today's response to unchangeable things demonstrates how secure and powerful we are on the inside. It is counterproductive to justify what we cannot change. However, we can take responsibility for our present choices and position ourselves for a better, more impactful future. It is at that point that our external world begins to change for good.